0: Brian Nichols, you're a great man with some great ideas, a great podcast. Do you see why he's my favorite libertarian people? (laughs) Yes. He's full of common sense and wisdom. Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. Today, I am joined by easily one of the best of the best, Matt Kibbe. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Hey, Brian, it's good to be with you. By the way, let me take a step back and say I love what you're doing. I love the conversational style, and it's a combination of good fun and serious ideas. I love the fact that your show's doing what it does, and and this is how we win the future. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest-growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about We did it, folks. It's Friday. We made it through another week. Because you know you're listening to your favorite podcast, or at least I hope I'm in your top five. The Brian Nichols Show here. Yes, Brian Nichols on The Brian Nichols Show. If it's your first time joining the show, thank you so much for joining us here on The Brian Nichols Show. Every single Friday, you are sure to get an episode of The Brian Nichols Show where I'm going to have on amazing guests who uh, we're going to have some interesting conversations that leave you guys feeling educated, enlightened, and informed. And today, of course, I'm going to have another fantastic guest on the show. And uh, it's very topical, actually, this guest, uh, Pratik Chogley. Now, Pratik is a, a researcher at Boston College's Center for the International Higher Education, where he is writing a book about American universities in the Greater Middle East. He previously was an executive editor at the American Conservative, and is a managing editor currently at the National Interest. During the 2016 election cycle, Chugley served as a policy coordinator on the president, uh, presidential campaigns for uh, both Donald Trump and of Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. From 2008 to 2009, Chugley was the uh, was a George W. Bush appointee at the State Department in the office of the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security. He uh, graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Brown University and holds a JD from Yale Law School. And I wanted to have Pr- Pratik on the show to discuss um, Iran. Which is, uh, you know, obviously in everybody's mind right now because of what's happening overseas. And the critique with his, uh, experience both in, in foreign policy, but also, uh, being a former, what he's, you know, self described as a neocon going to more of a, uh, a realist. I'm, I'm sure listening to his bio, you'd assume he, uh, you know, would, would be much more, uh, pro intervention and, and, you know, with his own seeings of how, the the more interventionist approach to foreign policy failed, uh, we get to hear his story and what changed his mind and, and kind of his perspective of what we should, you know, do in regards to what's going on in Iran. So with that, guys, I want to hold you up from the episode. On to the show! Pratik Chogley here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thank you first and foremost for reaching out to the show um, and and showing me what you do for work. Because I honestly, I think what you're doing needs to be spoken about so uh, fervently because right now where we are in America, obviously the rising uh, tensions and escalation in Australia possibly going to war with Iran. I think your message of non-interventionism, especially being someone who came from, shall we say, the more neoconservative right, it's it's desperately needed today. So let's kind of start out here in discussing, first and foremost, who the heck are you? And then we'll kind of dig into your your personal story, uh, going from a neoconservative to, shall we say, a more foreign policy realist. So with that, the floor is yours.
1: Great. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm currently a researcher at Boston College. I'm writing a book about Uh, American universities in the greater Middle East. Um, But previously, I've worked in a variety of foreign policy capacities. Uh, I was a magazine editor, a campaign uh, advisor. I worked at the State Department during the George W. Bush administration. And I've also helped a number of uh, foreign policy officials write their memoirs.
0: So what kind of got you started off in your political journey? Was there anything in particular that kind of set you towards one path or the other?
1: Yeah, I, you know, if you can believe it, I actually became interested in foreign policy when I was uh, five years old. And uh, the reason for that is uh, that's when the first Gulf War happened. And so the, the first Gulf War was really... Uh, I would argue the first time that we had a genuinely televised uh, conflict, Uh, CNN was actually showing the war as it was unfolding. Um, So my parents were watching uh, the war unfold, and I took an interest in that. And um, the, the Gulf War was really the beginning of my interest in foreign policy. And I think, like many people who were paying attention to foreign policy in the 90s, um, we saw a string of U.S. military interventions uh, more or less work and achieve the goals that they wanted to. Um, so, you know, seeing you, the the record of U.S. military interventions in the '90s, um, and then being a teenager when 9/11 happened, um, I more or less accepted uh, many of the arguments that the neoconservatives were making that uh, many of the problems in the Middle East and elsewhere around the world were a symptom of. Uh, political tyranny and political dysfunction, uh, and that the American military had a role to play as a stabilizer.
0: So <laughs> it's funny that you you start off just by talking about that because you know today we're recording here on on January seventh and this will be airing on uh, on on Friday of this week. Um, but I was listening to Ben Shapiro when I was at the gym and listening to Ben Shapiro discuss topically what's happening right now in Iran. It's literally the exact same argument that the neoconservatives, based just on even your experience, what they were saying back in the 90s. What is it about this neoconservative, honestly, it's an ideology, um, but what is it that's really gotten this neoconservative belief to be essentially at the forefront of American foreign policy for, dare I say, the past 70, 80 years?
1: Well, you know, I, I have to say that I think there are elements of neoconservative insights that I think uh, remain correct. I, I think it's very hard to uh, think about and understand the threat emanating from Iran without taking seriously the nature of the Iranian regime, um, their record on that, their ideology of Islamism, uh, the way they project power through terrorism and uh, weapons of mass destruction, etc., um, and so I think there is a, a an element of truth in neoconservative insights. Now, where I uh, differ from the neoconservatives is that I think the record that we have had in deploying military force uh, since 9-11 have not achieved uh, the goals that policymakers set out to. And while there are a number of reasons why American military interventions have fallen short, uh, I don't think that the only reason they they have not worked is because the use of force has not been applied correctly. I think that an insight that the neoconservatives have missed is that with the way our system is set up in the real world, with the way policymaking happens, uh, with the dynamics of the Middle East, I think there are just serious limitations on what uh, American military force can achieve. And I think given these realities, we have to be thinking uh, in other ways about how to protect our interests without relying um, on our military might uh, to the degree that we have.
0: So let, let's kind of take that, and I, I want to kind of apply it now to what was your experience, right? So you served in, in the Bush White House, correct?
1: I was at the State Department.
0: Okay, yeah. got you. So, so under the yeah. Bush administration. So, um, correct, yeah. So what was that like? What kind of what was number one your mindset when you were in the Bush um, State Department, but also kind of how did that curb your your views for better or for worse?
1: So I was at the uh, State Department from 2008 to 2009, so the very the final year of the Bush administration, and I was working on uh, arms control and nonproliferation uh, issues. And basically the way uh, the State Department is organized, that the arms control uh, bureau at the State Department historically tends to be the more uh, hawkish, military-oriented uh, uh, bureau within the State Department. Um so we were at an interesting juncture uh, in the sense that for, for much of the early period, especially of the Bush administration, uh, a lot of the emphasis and the arms control agenda focused on disarming Iraq. Uh, now, Iraq was disarmed as a consequence of the Iraq war, but in the course of that disarmament campaign, we just ended up uh, not only damaging American credibility to a large extent, Uh, but also Iraq consumed a great deal of the foreign policy uh, effort and agenda. Now, you know, the interesting thing looking back is that because I was in the Bush administration and then subsequently helped uh, with different memoirs, uh, I saw how many misjudgments there were in the conception of the Iraq war, the way that that the war was implemented. And so I believed for a long time that the reason why the Iraq intervention uh, failed was largely due to the errors and misjudgments in the way the war was carried out. Now, I think that there were serious misjudgments in the way the war was carried out. Um, but as I as I think back and reflect on not only the outcome that we had in Iraq, but also subsequent interventions that we've had, uh, particularly in Libya, which I think was actually implemented and carried out by a more able uh, set of strategists, and and it was done in a different way. The fact that our Uh, military campaign, even in Libya, had such uh, problematic consequences uh, was really the beginning of my thinking that there was something fundamentally wrong uh, with a foreign policy strategy that was so reliant on military intervention.
0: So did that kind of lead you more towards, I mean, I want to say more of like an isolationist or non-interventionist, but maybe more of a, uh, a foreign policy realist, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I I wouldn't call myself an isolationist because I, I think America does have a, a role to play in the world. I think that if if our foreign policy is handled in a certain way, we can be a, a stabilizer in the world. Um, I think one of the uh, insights perhaps that that doesn't get enough credit is the fact that our role as a global leader in the world uh, rests to a large degree, not necessarily on our military power, but just the fact that. People around the world accept the legitimacy of American power and and accept the fact that our role in the world is fundamentally benign. Um, and and if you look at, for example, the way globalization has unfolded with uh, free trade becoming more and more of a reality, with the world being interconnected, uh, I think American uh, uh, America's role in the world uh, does have can be credited with that. But I think that the flip side of that is that when America uh, goes too far in the, in the interventionist direction, and I would argue particularly when military force is involved, uh, that's when the consequences of American power become more problematic.
0: So kind of help frame for the audience what you would consider to be a more ideal situation for American foreign policy. Because obviously right now, with what we have in place, it's it's by and large really not working. We, we're spending trillions of dollars overseas in, in foreign conflicts you know, year after year. And, and we see just a perpetual continuation of what's been pretty much the status quo over in the Middle East, and that's been pretty much chaos. And and a lot of that, I dare say, is due to the fact that, you know, yes, we were there in causing a lot of the mayhem in the first place. So what would be the ideal kind of situation in in, in kind of your world?
1: Well, I think the foundation of America's influence on the world is creating a nation at home that people aspire to and believe is uh, broadly legitimate. and and emblematic of the kind of goals we want to pursue in the world. I think if you look at America today with our, uh, our national debt, with the, the degree to which we have family and social breakdown, uh, with the nature of our uh, pop culture, um, with the fact that our politics seem uh, by any standard to be dysfunctional, it's very hard for me to believe that leaders around the world uh, look to America and see a a model that is worth uh, aspiring to, which I think is very different from the situation that you might have had uh, in the early mid-90s. And so I think the, the first thing that ought to be done is to take seriously uh, the challenge of uh, addressing clear problems and imbalances at home uh, in the American economy and our American political system uh, and work on rectifying them. And I think that our military interventions, and our foreign policy um, have have not only created uh, uh, problems around the world, I think they've also sapped our uh, will and energy and dynamism at home.
0: Not, not, not that it's like super important, but I, I genuinely am curious, what, what would you say you identify politically as? Because I know you write for the American conservative, so I would assume that you're leaning more right, but where would you kind of self-identify?
1: Uh, I think over the years, I've sort of more and more gone from being a Neo-conservative, neoconservative to more of a libertarian, um, that's probably, you know, a good enough descriptor of where I am today. Gotcha.
0: And the reason I ask is because, I mean, I know I myself came more from the right, and and mine was growing up during Iraq War II, and and getting to see, you know, just the, the consequences of that happening right before my eyes, because, I mean— I'm from upstate New York right near where Fort Drum is originally from and and to see people that you you would see on a daily basis and people you know who are now going overseas and some of them not coming back it kind of it hits you that this is real um and it's not just you know the the video game mentality that it seems a lot of our foreign policy strategists have implemented over the past 70 years so i guess where would you say american foreign policy got it right in the past and maybe where do you see we, we've gotten off track, and what kind of was that, that precipice that got us going in the wrong direction? Well,
1: I think one uh, maybe one place to begin is the the lessons that American foreign policymakers uh, drew from the outcome of the Cold War. Uh, I think the collapse of the Soviet Union was obviously an enormous uh, strategic victory for the U.S., and I think the, the big lesson that American policymakers uh, drew from that is that they felt a great deal of vindication. Uh, from uh, the way we conducted our foreign policy in the Cold War. But I think that one of the one of the missteps or, or errors that happened is that although uh, it was right uh, for American foreign policymakers to think about the ingredients of why the U.S. emerged victorious in the Cold War, I think the opposite side of the coin also deserved attention, which is the question of how a, a beleaguered Russian empire that had been brutalized in World War II, um, that was founded on a very tenuous empire with restive nations that was built on a communist, uh, dysfunctional economy, how did the Soviet empire that had so many weaknesses compete with the U.S. uh, over many decades and at certain junctures of the Cold War uh, looked like they were going to win? And I think that perhaps a more sort of realistic, less triumphalist uh, interpretation of the Cold War uh, might have put American foreign policy on a more realistic footing. Um, I think what American foreign policymakers have gotten right um, is the insight that values matter, that that American power and America's role in the world is not simply a matter of um, looking at balances of power and, and sort of navigate managing narrow interests, but I think it's also that our uh, our ideals, our values, our emphasis on human rights, these are a part of our uh, appeal in the world. And I think that where I differ from many realists is that I do think American foreign policy ought to be grounded in a values orientation. But I think the big uh, mistake was overestimating what our government, what our institutions are capable of achieving. And I think that many of the weaknesses and shortcomings in our system really come to the fore. Uh, in particular, when we deploy military force in chaotic environments,
0: mm. and and we're actually seeing too, like kind of the the dirty behind the scenes here domestically, right? I mean, we just saw just what happened with this entire impeachment fiasco that that started off with the the, the Mueller investigations and and all the the malfeasances that were taking place behind the scenes by the FBI, but the CIA. And it's like, oh well, you know, these these are the organizations that were giving us a lot of the intelligence that they were using as justification for the wars overseas and. And we're starting to see more and more frequently that the information that we've been given has been incorrect. I mean, one note looked further than the the fact what's happening with the Afghanistan papers that were released, showing just how how out of source the Pentagon was, both you know maliciously and unintentionally, just out of pure ignorance. And it's it's kind of shocking, I think, for your average citizen to see this. But honestly, a lot of it's not being covered; it's not being discussed as much because there seems to be a much more focused you know agenda in in the corporate media, and it. Doesn't seem like this kind of aha moment, which I dare say would have been an aha moment, be it back under the Bush administration, um, because they were looking for for a way to say, look at, you know, we need to be anti-war, and Bush is a, a war criminal. That was the argument, and you know this now is is coming to light, and it seems like the the anti-war left has has gone completely missing when it comes to exposing what now took place. Under you know the the Bush administration, but also what continued through the Obama administration and you know his his thousands and thousands of drones overseas.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's become kind of a almost a cliche now for people in the American establishment to lament uh, the extent to which Americans have lost confidence in their institutions. And I've I've always found that a little bit perplexing because I would argue actually that the American people have a uh, inordinate degree of faith in our institutions. Um, you can kind of see that in our pop culture, for example, where everyone sort of lampoons Hollywood and whatever for being these anti-American leftists. But, I, you know, I would argue that when you look at the depiction or the way that uh, American CIA or FBI officers or even military people are portrayed in the media, they're uh, portrayed as people who are efficient, competent. They get the job done. They go hunt bad guys around the world. Um. I mean, if, if you actually look at the way our institutions work, even when they're working well, uh, they're riddled with bureaucratic leaks and inefficiencies and cover-ups and all-in-all you know, in all incompetence. And I think that a, a degree of healthy skepticism about uh, the inherent shortcomings and limitations about what our institutions can produce uh, might be the first step in, in rectifying or correcting some of the imbalances in our uh, foreign policymaking.
0: So, speaking of uh, of some misinformation out there, it seems with all the, the stuff that's going on in Iran, actually, here we are, you know, doing our recording right now. It looks like there might be a missile strike uh, from Iran uh, to, I forget the base, but it's a base in Iraq where US troops are, are stationed right now. Um, so, Right now, we could literally have history unfolding. Who knows? Uh, But let's kind of talk about, as we transition towards uh, this topic here, Iran. Uh, How did we get here? And, you know, with, it seems like World War III knocking on our door. It's one question I know a lot of people are are saying, like, where did this all begin, number one? And number two, why are, why are we over there in the first place? Why are we worrying about, um, you know, this this general that was just killed? Why why is this such a big issue when, you know, we're a world apart? Can you kind of set the, the stage for this?
1: Yeah, well, uh, Brian, I'd be curious if you agree. Um, My own view is that, as kind of unbelievable as it sounds, I don't think the U.S. has ever actually had a genuine Iran policy, which is to say that um, since the 79 revolution, we've kind of gone from one crisis to the next without actually a clear understanding of what we uh, want out of our Iran policy. Now, I think part of that is that American uh, power and the American agenda has been consumed by other crises uh, in the Middle East. And so even though Americans uh, have recognized that Iran is a serious player, it's kind of been overshadowed by other uh, issues. Um, I think Iraq is the obvious example of where from uh, the first Gulf War uh, through the current war in Iraq, we've been so consumed with the threat uh, posed by Iraq that Iran has been kind of a sideshow. Um, and I think that we've never quite, uh, uh, as a country, decided on what we want out of Iran. Do we want to accommodate Iranian power, uh, keep it at bay, and, and deal with other issues? Um, do we want regime change in Iran? Do we simply want to uh, focus on the nuclear issue and prevent them from going nuclear? And so even today, I actually do not know, and I, I'm skeptical that American policymakers even have a clear understanding of what we want Um uh, for Iran, or what we want to happen in Iran, and so I think a lot of where we are now is a symptom of managing crisis after crisis without actually having a clear Iran policy.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I dare say a lot of the crises that we're facing are are you know of our own our own doing. Honestly, I mean, uh, and you mentioned the policies that we really haven't had, and that, that's a very actually a good point. I think it's. Actually, maybe a thankfully a, a result of our our democratic system where, you know, we we will vote one party out and then put another party out to, that kind of bends to the will of the people. But I don't know. I see more recently the the will of the people for anti-war has been ignored more and more so by the establishment elite um, or just, you know, the, the military industrial complex who's working behind the scenes. But I mean, it's obvious that we've had people who have been raising the alarm that this is going to be a problem. Wesley Clark, back in 99, he said, quote, we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq, then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and uh, finishing off Iran. Did he get the timeline wrong? Well, yeah, but did he get the, most of the countries right? Uh, it's 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 pretty scary because you know that that was said in 1999, yet we're seeing here we are in 2020, and you know we're we're almost to the point where that is becoming reality. I mean, you had John McCain bomb 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 Iran, and that was he had no qualms of saying that on on you know a hot mic, and he seemed to be celebrating it. So, I mean, it used to be that the right was the party of war and the left was the party of the anti-war, and now it seems that. It's more of the establishment in both parties are, are fans of war. And thankfully, you have voices both on the left and the right. I'd say, you know, the left of, of a Tulsi Gabbard, for example, and then on the right, those of a Justin Amash or a Thomas Massey, who are, who are fervently, you know, maybe not necessarily anti-war, but at the very least non-intervention. And, you know, it it seems now we're at a point where the original duopoly that was out there of this, you know, two-party system that's going to be controlling us forever is now more of a, a pro-war you know, duopoly that's that's from both the establishment of the left and the right. And it seems like the more, you know, I'd say common sense, logical thinking folk in, in the rest of the parties, they're kind of sitting there on our hands like, what do we do? Yeah, there's
1: no question that we have a bipartisan foreign policy establishment and a foreign policy elite that is significantly more hawkish uh, than where American public opinion is. Um, now, I think the question is why? How did we get there? And I think a lot of the answer has to do with the fact that uh, those who are more inclined toward interventionism have simply done a a better job of creating institutions and uh, uh, organizing in ways that give them outsized influence in the political debate. Um, I'm frankly skeptical that we're, uh, or let me put it a different way, I think that probably we're going to continue to see a status quo. Uh, where we have a bipartisan foreign policy elite, I think they will continue to have an outsized uh, role and influence. And I think that we will continue to see in the next couple of years a mismatch of sorts between the kind of foreign policy that the American people want and the kind of foreign policy that we in fact get uh, simply due to the entrenched uh, foreign policy elite that we have in both parties.
0: It's wild, right? I mean, you watch on the debate stage, you had Donald John Trump on stage in South Carolina, which is, you know, a fervent pro-Bush state, standing next to Jeb Bush, George Bush's brother, and basically turning to him during the debate and saying, your brother lied and got us into the Iraq war and it was an absolute disaster. And like, he called him out on stage. And that was, you know, the President of the United States who now is is in the, the role of being able to actually dictate a, a rational foreign policy, yet he seems even, he's kind of, you know, reneged on what he said he was going to do so here we are, right, January 7th as we're recording 2020 and it sounds like things are escalating in fact over in Iran. So I want to ask you just based on where we are right now, what kind of seems to be let, let's let's break this into two parts. One, what do you see as being the I guess the end solution or end the end game if you will of what happens with the Iran situation uh or and then number 2, what do you think we should do right now based on we we're currently standing with Iran with them seemingly launching um you know missiles to the United States bases there in Iraq.
1: Well, I I think both the US and Iran recognize at the end of the day that a all out confrontation or conflict um, is not in their interest. Now, that's not a guarantee that that kind of situation will not in fact happen. I think we we have ample historical precedent uh, to show that these kind of crises can flare up beyond uh, in ways that no one wants. Um, but that said, my my hunch here is probably that uh, things will escalate, but that the escalation will probably remain contained uh, in Iraq and that we'll see a, a proxy war of sorts developing uh, in Iraq. Um, one of the things that I think is remarkable in the way the, the post-war in Iraq is carried out is that by any conventional uh, measure of power, um, the the U.S. is a stronger party. At, at, if you look at our troop levels in Iraq, uh, the amount of money we're putting into the campaign, uh, the coherence of our national security institutions, our alliances around the world, and yet when you look at uh, how much the Iranians have achieved, it's it's remarkable that they, uh, you know, in in a variety of ways, from asymmetric warfare to the way they've Navigated the Iraqi political system, they basically turned this uh, war into an opportunity to to uh, gain influence over Iraq. Um, that that I think well exceeds what you would predict simply from uh, Iran's power alone. Uh, so my my guess here is that what Iran probably wants out of this conflict is to. Uh, Expand their influence and their hold over the situation in Iraq. And judging by the recent uh, parliamentary vote in Iraq, it looks like they may get their way.
0: So, what do you see going into the 2020 election as being the the winning argument, be it from President Trump or the eventual Democratic nominee, in terms of uh, trying to win the, the hearts and souls of the American people, especially in regards to the foreign policy going forward?
1: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with how. Uh, The uh, democratic candidates, or I suppose the the eventual democratic nominee, uh, chooses to engage uh, Trump on foreign policy. I think that the argument that Trump has to bring to the table is that on the one hand, um, we continue to have problems in the world. um, But at the same time, it has to be conceded that as uh, ham-handed as Trump has been in certain respects, I think that the Trump administration deserves credit in the sense that they have managed to avoid the kind of blunders that we've seen from the last few administrations. We've had nothing, uh, no misguided or botched interventions of the sort that we had in Libya under Obama uh, or or Iraq under Bush. And so I think that the Trump administration has shown a degree of restraint. Uh, At the same time, I think, as you pointed out, the Trump administration has not lived up to the promises that Trump campaigned on. Uh, which is a, a more fundamental reassessment of American foreign policy. Um, and so I think this leaves the eventual Democratic nominee with a lot of different options. Uh, one scenario might be that they don't engage on foreign policy at all and try to focus the discussion on domestic policy. But I think that the Democratic nominee could also critique uh, Trump from both sides. Either they could argue that uh, America has not been robust enough, that we've allowed our alliances to fray, that America has not shown the kind of leadership that we want. Or I think the Democratic nominee could make uh, the opposite argument, that Trump has continued the cycle of American overreach, uh, that we continue to intervene in places where we don't have an exit strategy. And I think any of these scenarios could work. um, But I think we we don't know yet which tact uh, the Democratic nominee will take.
0: Well, I guess uh, people need to, to stay up to date in learning about what's going to be happening in t- as we go into 2020, especially when it comes to foreign policy. So where can folks go ahead and uh, and follow you and uh, keep up to uh, to date with all the articles you're writing over at The American Conservative?
1: Um, well, you can, uh, I have a website, uh or you can find me on Twitter uh, where I'm posting fairly frequently.
0: Thank you so much for, for joining the show. And we're looking forward to having you on again in the future. Great. Thank you. Alright guys, so that's going to wrap up my conversation with Pratik Chogley. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I know I certainly did and I think it's a great opportunity for uh, for you to share an episode with folks who are probably more on the right, you know, I think that's fair to say, especially if they pr- approach things more from a neoconservative perspective. Um, so, you know, with that, please share today's episode, not only with those folks, but also with family and friends. Um, and as always, you can be sure to follow me over on social media, both on Twitter and on Facebook at BNicholsLiberty. Uh, and guys, if you want to do, uh, do me a favor, right? So right now, we are Libertarians is doing a, uh, an entire uh, logo redesign, uh, entire branding redesign, and uh, we're looking for sponsors. So if you guys are interested in just, you know, contributing $5, $10, $15 towards the... Uh the, the redesign we would greatly appreciate it i'll include that link in the show notes every little bit helps um and hey you know as we uh, we move forward and we grow here as a network we're gonna we're gonna evolve as well so uh be sure to, to keep an eye out i don't know maybe a couple episodes or so for a new intro uh, we'll see that's gonna be a lot of fun but uh guys thank you so much for uh, for joining the show today and uh hey oh last thing don't forget right over on iTunes. Uh, I really do appreciate every review. Um, So guys, from the bottom of my heart, thanks for joining here on The Brian Nichols Show and uh, signing off for Prateek Chogli. We'll see you next week. Oh, I missed that. Thanks for listening to The Brian Nichols Show. Find more episodes at briannicholsshow.com.